Welcome back to another episode of the Bootstrapped Experience podcast, where Jack and I uh, talk about our lives building SaaS apps on Shopify and outside of Shopify. Uh, hey, Jack. Hello. Hey. It's been a busy week, actually, I, I feel, uh, at least for me. But yeah, I've, I've done a bunch of different things, trying to uh, move forward with development on our new stuff. We're also having some like failures on existing stuff. Uh, I'll get into that a bit, but uh, I'm not a friend. Uh, I, I'm not a friend of the Shopify POS system at the moment. And then uh, yeah, and then also got uh, into doing more design, so building um, building designs for uh, continuing on on the next apps. But yeah, so what do you been up to, Jack? It's been a really busy week. Not too much to do with the Shopify app. But yeah, so I haven't been doing a whole lot of work this week, although I have looked a bit more at Translate CI and Superhero. So Superhero has been rejected again, and I'm trying to figure out how to deal with that this time. Oh, no. So Yeah. So if you recall, it's it creates hero images for Shopify stores, and it's sort of got the themes built into it to optimize like the perfect hero image for your shop. And it's an embedded app. It runs in the Shopify admin. That said, it doesn't really use the Shopify API all that much. And apparently that is a requirement that it uses the Shopify API more than just the basic authentication. So it was rejected because of that. Okay. That seems strange because it's still an app that people can get value from and you're using it for authentication and I'm sure you, you can use it for billing and everything, right? Yeah. So I think that it's going to need a new feature probably that interacts a little more with the API. So I was thinking we had talked last week about it pulling in the theme information dynamically to crop the images rather than just making that like a drop-down menu. Yeah. So I think I might try to do that. I just haven't had a chance to do it yet. I will say it's been a long time since I have submitted an app to Shopify. And I think it's the system has gotten a little stranger. So I remember like when I've submitted before, it's a back and forth conversation with their app reviewer where you kind of discuss the app and figure out what's going to work best for them. So I wrote this sort of long reply asking some questions and why, what I can do to make the app good for them. And then I discovered that it went to a no reply email address. Like you don't have access to the app reviewer anymore, which yeah, yeah. That really surprised me. Yeah, that seems to be it. I guess at the same time, it's not their job to tell us how. I guess they're, they're trying to enforce the rules, right? So they can't sort of give us ideas of how to improve our apps, in a sense. I guess they should tell us why it's failing. Yeah, but it just seems a bit... I guess it's because of the volume that they receive, right? I know it's, a, it's quite a small team that's that's handling all this uh, compared to other parts of Shopify. So I think, yeah, I agree with that it's a bit... It's a shame that it's like that, but I'm sure there's, there's, you know, they're trying to get it as streamlined as possible. Yeah, very true. So I guess if you don't agree with the decision and you want to sort of pitch your case to say, hey, uh, but in fact, I use it like this, or hey, it's useful because of. Yeah, exactly. So it was weird in the app rejection, they linked 
uh, a part of their documentation that didn't really seem to have anything to do with requiring the, they just linked to the app requirements, which don't list that as a requirement. So there's a chance I'm misunderstanding what they're saying, which is weird, but I can't get clarification on it. So <laughs> I guess I'll keep moving forward. Uh, yeah. So, so say you do have to accept that, that that is a requirement that you use the API more. Would it be the themes API that you'd be looking to use then to extract this data from? I think so. So it would be nice, and this was something I had planned, is to just pull a list of their themes and give them like a customized dropdown. Although I wonder, that's a pretty small feature. Like I wonder if that's going to be enough for them. I think so. I mean, I hope so. I've seen simpler apps than that. Yeah. And yeah, I, I can't see why that should be an issue. I, I don't understand the requirement to begin with, because if you can build an app that, that solves an issue without having to use the API, so maybe you're doing some like web scraping or something for them instead. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not going <laughs> to guess too much on that. It just seems strange. Yeah, the other thing I had considered, because I wanted to... So when you create your hero image, you need to download it and then upload it to Shopify. And I really just wanted to just take care of that automatically. But they actually don't give any API access to the asset library. You can only upload an image related to a product. So there's nowhere for me to upload it to. That would have been like a nice use of the API if I could have done it. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, because they've got the media API, but that's only to attach it to products. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you can't actually, yeah. I think a lot of people would have, you know, liked to have that, but I'm sure it would also be abused, like, stupidly. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> we would all store our databases on there, I think. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, ah, nice. But, okay, so then you just got to try and, yeah, come up with a <laughs> an API-based feature then. But I, I guess what I've found... I've also used extracting data from the themes. And I think it's a really good way to to customize people like your app. So say you need a logo or you need colors or whatever. Instead of asking people to upload them again, you can uh, go out and fetch it from the from their store because they've generally already customized their store. But that doesn't, I don't use the API either for that. I use something called Puppeteer, which is, it's basically the Google Chrome browser that you're controlling via JavaScript. So it's like a scraping tool in a sense, but it can also generate like images or return JSON or whatever you want it to. It can create PDFs. But yeah, I found that to be a really good way to do it. And what I found with the themes at least is they all have an ID, right? Uh, if they're like a published, not like the ID of the record itself, but like a parent theme ID, like which theme was this created from? So say it's in the theme store, all the themes there have an ID and then you can identify them that way because they may actually, you know, rename the theme or whatever. Um, yeah. So I th that's a good thing to look for anyway. Yeah, I do use that in need A-B testing. So maybe I can just port that over for this. Yeah, okay, nice. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the hard part's going to be like custom themes and things like that. Yeah, yeah, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's actually why I went to getting it from their website. So instead of, you know, pulling in the theme data from the API, I'd go to their website and find like the logo, the fonts, the colors, and everything like that, because it, then it works. If you can get it to work there, you get it to work on any on any theme, and it doesn't really matter which one they're actually using. But it's harder to know in your case because you're looking for image dimensions, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a good idea. I, mean, I can figure out something there. Yeah, uh, cool. 
Yeah, for me, I've been working on uh, AppKit. I've actually, yeah, I got to do more development this week as well, together with Arjun. It's been really good. I've probably been spending more time in it than I should, considering like support and, and everything else that I need to get done. But it's been really nice to, to just get my hands dirty in some code as well. We got finished on, on setting up the sort of base structure of AppKit. So a lot of it has been like plumbing work just to get this whole thing so you can easily plug it into another, like the main app that you're building and you just bolt on all this functionality. And in doing that, it complicates things quite a bit. But that's been uh, fun to now we've finished that off and now we can actually start on like the actual features that will be maybe seen by somebody or it feels more like building a normal Rails app than the plumbing that we've been doing because we've had to get into sort of the weeds on a lot of stuff. But yeah, and part of that, now we're do, getting into the shop and the user models to for when people are installing them and, and signing up for the first time. And I've always only ever used the shop uh, resource from Shopify before, but this time we're using, going to be grabbing the user information as well. So doing it like per user authentication. And the reason to do that or that it makes sense is not only you will have their correct contact information, which really helps like support info, because generally we just, we only know the, the store owner's email or their customer support email and the store owner's name from the shop object. But on the users, then we have like their real name. We know their direct contact email. So if they you know, pull up a, a chat widget in the app, we, can, we know who exactly it is. But even on another point, and one of the reasons we want to complicate things more by having users in there, is that we can also know who is using the app in a sense from what this person can do. And not so much like in features, but more, hey, can this person upgrade the account? Can they actually purchase these email templates that we're, because only the account owner can actually add charges to the account. So this will open up. I'm sure we've been, you know, losing money in a sense by, you know, not making it easier for staff of a store to notify the owner of the store that, hey, we'd like to buy this. So instead of showing a purchase button, you could say a purchase. And when it pops up, hey, the store owner needs to do this, enter their email, or should we send them a message? And then they customize the message or whatever. Uh, and we can put some, make the message really nice that sort of explains like the unique selling points of our app and how it will help them and stuff like that. And I think that would really help conversion sometimes. So I think adding that into the app and, and the nice part is we only have to add it once and then it should work the same for all of our, all of the apps going forward. So adding that extra complexity, I think might be worth it. I'm hoping it's going to be worth it. No, that makes a lot of sense. So I've considered using, that's like an upgrade I've wanted to make the need A-B testing for a long time too, because one common pattern I see is that shop owners want to hire someone to manage their A-B test form, like a consultant or something like that. And they don't necessarily want to give them any access to the shop. So it'd be really nice to be able to have separate logins and things like that outside of the Shopify system. And also just knowing, yeah, there's the same kind of issue where if I don't know who's actually logged into the account, I'm not always addressing things to the right people, same as you. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the big one for us. So we're not generating users in the fact that they can sign up or, or how would you say, they won't have a, a customizable user in our app. So they won't have separate login details or anything. It'll still be like single sign-on from Shopify where they get authenticated that way. But then we store that so we always have or know who they are. So we won't go the step of, of being able to offer access for people that don't have any Shopify uh, access that have to have like apps or I know on... I think it's on Shopify Plus, you can actually, you know, assign specific apps as well. But yeah, so it'd be really nice to be able to know exactly who we're talking to and, and what they can and can't do sort of thing. Yeah, and that, that's been fun to, to think about upfront and the best way to do it as well. He's good at uh, thinking about it upfront 
um, and saying, hey, what, what do you think? Uh, here's what I'm thinking. And what are your ideas around this? And it's been fun to collaborate. It's not something I've really done a lot with coding before. It's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've got to learn too, right? <laughs> sure. That's yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah, I've been considering, I talked about hiring a new developer in the new year. And I feel like I'm getting to that point because my dev list is so long. It's overwhelming at this point. I'm probably going to wait a, another month, but I think I am going to look for a new developer. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think it's definitely worth it. And I've always been really slow. At, it's just been me for so many years that now that I am uh, starting to hire people, it's like, oh, why didn't I do this earlier? It's yeah. so nice to have somebody when at the moment we're in lockdown and, and the kids are home, they've just extended it for another three weeks. And which means we've got the kids at home. So we've got to take care of schooling, like homeschooling for them at the same time and try and get work done. And, and it's just great to see that there's still progress being made, even when you're not banging away at the keys yourself. Yeah, it's so nice. Like when you have to take a day off, someone's still making progress. Yeah, exactly. And then also the input that you get by working together with somebody collaboratively, I think is is quite nice. Things from different perspectives, or somebody prods you to move in ways that maybe you, you know you haven't explored before, which I think is good. And then the next thing after that we're getting into is like a welcome flow for the email. So I've always really liked um, to think about sort of the blank slate when people first log into your app and some of my apps do it better than others i think but now we i want to really make it slick or intuitive i guess you could say and and part of that is it looks a lot like the blank slate pages but it's more like a slideshow often you see them in apps when you boot them up the first time and you've got four slides that you go through that sort of tell you the features of the app or the main features and things where you can you know what you should do or the first steps that you should take and so forth building that out and i think it's a nice way to start looking at the UI and how we're going to build all the components and things like that as well. Um, so it's a good sort of starting feature for us to, to get a handle on how we're building this. But yeah, have you got any type of welcome flows in, in your existing apps? I do. And I've, I've actually been thinking about that more lately. So when a user signs up for need A-B testing, they get a, an email sequence that goes out over about two weeks, basically the length of their trial. And it's got some video walkthroughs. It takes them from creating their first test all the way to interpreting the results. There's about 20 minutes worth of like screencast material in there. And the okay. flow splits at a couple points too. So if I see they're not creating a test or whatever, eventually they get like a link that they can book a meeting with me. But I have been thinking about this more recently because I was just looking at the percentage of trial users that actually create a first test. And it's, it's a little lower than I was hoping. So I find about 25% of trial users never create a test. And I've been trying to okay. think of ways to reach out to them a little better and educate them. I think yeah. the issue is that A-B testing is like a skill. You have to learn a lot about it to start running successful tests and do them in the right way. You've got to have at least a passing understanding of statistics and... The stuff that a lot of these people I'm sure don't have. I didn't when I started. I think that there's a lot of opportunity for like educational material. And I was even thinking about maybe at least temporarily just reaching out to every single person that installs the app and offering them a demo or let me sit with you and create your first test. That would be overwhelming just based on the number of signups I get, I wouldn't be able to maintain that for long, but yeah. I was thinking about trying it for a week or two weeks and, and just seeing what happens and, and just biting off more than I can chew and then going from there. 
Yeah, I think that's a great idea because one is not everyone who will take you up on the offer either. Right. So so some people are just kicking the tires and stuff, but some of some people will, and it'll be super useful for you to see where people are getting tripped up or even how far in the process they are. Do they understand how to use this? Not the tool, but to use the, how to use effectively A-B testing, right? More yeah, than that's, the tool itself. yeah. That's one thing I've struggled with a little bit is that I know a lot about A-B testing just because I've been doing this for a long time. And I want my customers to use me as a resource more than they do, I think, sometimes. Yeah. And I think if you're like in a higher sort of price plan as well, where yours does move up as, or at least it lends itself to being able to offer that type of support. Some apps, yeah. if they're like five bucks a month, it's all going to be impossible to do that in the same sense over time because you'll never be able to hire for it or anything else. And I, I do offer an agency component to it, which I've just had a couple of people take me up on. Basically, the way that works is you pay a set fee and I will just, we'll discuss, we'll have a few phone calls, we'll figure out your what kind of test you want to run, what you're trying to do, and I'll just run them for you and report back. Okay. So essentially, I'm using the app on their behalf. And that's been really good. We've had really good results that way. They don't have to worry about things as much. They don't have to learn about statistics. I'll explain everything they need to know, and they just get the results they're looking for. Yeah. I really enjoy doing that. I think that's a great model, and it could scale out really well if you had a sales team and or people to sit and get more business in because I'm sure that once you've got the test running, you need to leave it for a while before you make the next test. You can't run too many tests at the same time and so forth. So there is a stop and go process to that where you can actually fit in quite a few clients as well. Yeah. And that's that, and that, that is where I struggle a little bit with the agency portion. It's just that people want to run 15 tests a month and it's just not possible. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. really for A-B testing, if you can do one a week, you're doing pretty good. Okay. So, yeah, and that's based on also how much traffic you're getting, right? To actually give you statistical results. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. usually for shops that do this, they're doing a thousand plus orders a month. That seems sort of okay. well for them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Another thing I was thinking about when you were explaining that is, is there ways to, or maybe you're already doing this, um, but is there ways to educate inside the tool like you were talking about the email flows and creating educational material but is it possible like to to show in place like having like a little sidebar or somewhere where you show like helpful stuff about this page that you're on or that's very specific hey what's the one thing i should be keeping an eye on this particular page or in this section or on this graph or can you impart sort of nuggets of wisdom in a sense like inside the app itself yeah, that's such a good idea. So just as an example, on the results page, there's all these different ways using drop-down menus, you can dice up the data and look at it in different ways. And when I'm analyzing a test, I make extensive use of those. And when I watch other people use the app or just look at it, I, I tracked it for a little while and very few people are using those much at all. And mm. there's so much, like it's this weird, almost buried feature that's so useful and i think people just don't know how to use it i really like screencast videos when i use a product so i tend to make those for ADB testing but yeah maybe just a sidebar that gives some pointers with links to more information would be helpful there yeah i think so especially if you, you know, a lot of people will be coming into this with less knowledge so you can say what well, you can hold their hand a little bit along the way i should be better at doing that in my apps as well but i think it's just a, a yeah, it's a nice way to do it. I've noticed like a lot of mobile apps do that type of thing and they do it quite well. 
Um, yeah, I always like those little tour things where it, you click through and it points out different features of the UI. I always think those are yeah. really helpful. Yeah, I find those like really helpful for more like getting orientate, orientated <laughs> uh, in, in a new app, right? Hey, here's where you go to do this. That's where you go to do this. But I'm thinking this is maybe more like actual domain knowledge education in a sense, right? Yeah, um, yeah it is weird yeah. because I feel like I'm the repository of that and it's not so much in the app. So if they reach out to me, I yeah. can help them with it. But if they don't, then they're not really getting the information in the app itself, which is a problem. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, I I could make use of a handheld onboarding experience in, in my orderly print app as well, because they're usually more like sophisticated people or stores with more orders that are coming in there as well. And there's a lot of options in that app. So how do I get this set up to match exactly our process? And some stores are doing like uh, plain old uh, shipping packages. Others are doing a combination of shipping packages, digital orders. Some are doing uh, pickup, some are doing uh, local delivery and things like that. How do I get all this set up to fit in my process? Um, yeah, it could be a good test to do at some point as well. Definitely. But it's it's easy to look back and say, hey, I should do this and I should do that. But it's right. also finding time and priorities and everything else. Oh, I know. Um, yeah. But how much t uh, time do you spend on, like, uh, or when you were doing support yourself, are you looking at you can now do a bit more salesy style work? Is that because you've outsourced support or, like, how much time were you, were you spending on support when you were doing it? Yeah, when I was doing support, I was probably on it for two to three hours a day and that was really because i was writing really detailed emails i was analyzing their whole shop and suggesting tests and helping interpret results and things like that i had a hard time stepping away and not like just going probably way further than i needed to help customers which is a good thing for sure it helped me get a lot of good reviews but i did outsource it eventually because i just couldn't keep up with it so now I have a guy that handles the first tier request. He does really good with that. And I probably spend, now it's more like an hour or two a week on support. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that it's a good balance because it still leaves enough, enough time of the day. Even if you were doing two or three hours a day, you can still get a lot more done. I think it's once it becomes more than, that's when it starts to suck out all the energy. Uh, at least for me, because I know... Uh, similar to you where I like to give nice detailed answers or to go in and say, oh, hey, I'll just change this uh, template code or something for you so it will work correctly. But it does take a lot of effort and it takes longer than if you're just saying, hey, here, get outside help or, or here's a tutorial you can just read through. Yeah, but I found like two to three hours is always, I guess in the beginning it, it took, what, five minutes or something because I get one me message or whatever. But once it started getting a bit more, then it was like half an hour and then a year later it was maybe an hour and then in the end, it was like two or three hours constantly. And then uh, when COVID hit, it, it got up to like almost all day. Yeah. Uh, just because of the flux of people. Um, yeah, I was so yeah. bad at like going too far with support. Like you just reminded me, there were many cases where they'd be like, okay, I'm going to hire someone to change this page for this test. I'd be like, ah, no problem. I, I got, it's just a little CSS. Let me write that for you. <laughs> like, I can't, I, like, unfortunately, I, it'd be awesome if I could do that for everyone, but I can't. So I need yeah. to learn to step back a little. Yeah. yeah, you're almost shooting yourself in the foot because then they also expect it next time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 
yeah, definitely. But it's like you're saying, it, it gets you great reviews as well. And I think that's the reason to give good support is not only to have like happy customers, but it really does help in growing the business. Without reviews, you don't get found in the app store, at least I don't think. And 90% of our reviews come from interactions with support. Yeah. I, that's one thing, like I noticed that like, you got like a billion reviews for all your apps. I only have about 30, but they're all <laughs> good. They're hard, hard earned. <laughs> I feel like, so this is what I learned too from a couple apps is that 10 reviews seems to be the magic number. And maybe there's tiers above that, but like at 10 solid five-star reviews, you can really start to rank in the app store. You can get featured on the homepage, things like that. So that's what yeah. I always worked really hard at is just let me get those first 10 solid detailed reviews and go from there. Yeah, definitely. It's been a while since I've looked at how many we actually got. I just pulled it up and it's surprisingly a lot. <laughs> it feels like, wow. But I've also been doing it for almost, you know, nine years now. So yeah. it's a long march to those. But yeah, most of those are earned from giving support. Yeah. And I don't want to count how many support replies I've gotten over the years now. This uh, is this is one thing I've noticed anecdotally, and I guess there's no solution to this, but the it seems like the reviews that they show like the first two or three on the app page itself, and it seems like when they're really detailed and awesome, it helps your SEO. And so I've noticed a couple of times I've seen my SEO drop when a really long review gets pushed off that front page. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I guess they're ranking... Yeah, true. I think length of reviews, I'm sure, has a easy part of their algorithm, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. I know that they stopped allowing really short reviews. Um, people have to actually say something that's longer than, I can't remember how many characters it is, but before somebody could just, you know, give a thumbs up, basically, and that was good enough. Yeah. Um, uh, it also doesn't really help the next person coming along. They, what, what is good about this app? Why are you giving it a five-star review? I guess the frustrating part as well, though, is for one, if you're giving or not giving good support, then you'll get bad reviews. And I think that's fair. Hey, you're running a, a business over sense or you're helping businesses here and businesses require support. But the other one is generally the people that leave a one-star review have never actually reached out to support. If they did, we'd be able to solve their problem or right. I guess they're frustrated and then they, they leave a one-star review. But the best way to save those, I've found at least, is just to reach out to them and say, hey, we saw, saw this and also reply on the review itself. I'm generally very understanding in those. A couple of times I've been a bit cheeky, I think. Somebody's saying, oh, why isn't this free? Uh, which is fair enough. But but then I thought it was a bit cheeky and said, hey, I looked at your store and why aren't your products free? It's just like the tone, you know, it, I felt, okay, I've had enough of this. I need to actually give something back here. But, but most of the one-star reviews you get, it's because we've dropped the ball in some sense or they just haven't got in contact with us. And then we can usually save those anyway. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But so generally, though, if you get a bad review, that's the way you manage it is just reaching out to them and then replying yeah. on, the, on the review itself. Yeah, exactly. And the, the support heroes that are handling my support, they have a, a good sort of process in that as well. And we also have a nice little process for everyone that leaves a, a good review. We tag them and then they get an email from me. So saying thank you and, and we really appreciate it and stuff like that. And then we get a lot of replies to that just saying, hey, super happy with the app or they'll give some feedback that they maybe didn't want to leave on the review because they wanted it to be really positive. And then they say, oh, hey, but the only thing I found difficult to understand or frustrating or something is this. And then it gives really good feedback because That's they're sort of idea. coming at it with a, a positive spin 
on what they're coming with you. And then constructive criticism is great, I think. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's actually a really good idea. I don't think I really reach out to people that write reviews if I hadn't dealt with them previously. Yeah. Yeah. I think having lots of good saved replies and things like that can really cut down even for things like this where you're sending off a thank you or a follow-up to a negative review or something like that. Obviously, you I always customize my saved replies in some way, but you can get a lot of good stuff written really quickly. So I have a, a giant catalog. I had a giant catalog of good replies I could send to people in all the different situations. What do you What do you use to manage your help desk? Intercom. Okay. Yeah, which I have a love-hate relationship to. <laughs> <laughs> love the product, hate the pricing model. Not yeah. just because it's expensive, but because wherever you click inside the app, it's asking you to upgrade. And I've been with them since the start where it was a lot simpler and then they've just added more and more complexity in that they can't even tell you what features are going to cost you uh, unless you get in contact with them and stuff like that Um, so when they relaunch a new feature so it's a shame because there's a lot of useful stuff in there i would use as well but once you start and because how would you say i get a lot more signups coming through because of the one-time fees on a couple of my apps right which means that these people come in use my app maybe once or twice but then you know, they're tracked by Intercom and Intercom then tack on to count that person gets counted forever in Intercom, right? So oh, they wow. may just come in once or twice to use the app or to, to check it out. But then I now have to pay for that person in Intercom forever. It just seems silly. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so I have quite a, hi- a high number of contacts in Intercom, which just drives the, the pricing up a lot. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. I use yeah. Help Scout. I've been pretty happy with them. It's a little simple yeah. Intercom, but uh, they've been really good. Yeah, I've tried them out a few times. And the only reason I haven't really switched is because switching away from Intercom means you need to find a new help desk, you need to find a new knowledge base, you need to find a new email marketing tool, usability, all, all this type of stuff. And the good thing about having everything in Intercom is that you actually have, you collect all your data in one place, right? Um, so you can use that for both your customer service, but also for your marketing messages. You can ping messages in the app, uh, send them via email and so forth. So like I said, love the product. It's just uh, frustrating their pricing. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. And I thought this was, I thought this was really cool is recently Help Scout like lowered the price of the plan I'm on and grandfathered me in and actually lowered my price, which is really cool. Oh, nice. um, there's another tool I use. I won't name them, but basically I was paying them about a hundred dollars a month and found out six months ago, they lowered the price of the plan I was on to $24. And so I've been paying an extra $76 a month that really wasn't oh, wow. necessary. And I only yeah. discovered it. Yeah. I had to go in to change like an email notification in there and three clicks into their settings. There's this little notice that says, Hey, by the way, you should probably be on this new plan. That's $24 a month. Yeah. I was yeah, like, really disappointed. yeah. I've always done. I've always made sure to contact people if I've dropped the price of a plan somewhere. I think it's the only right thing to do. So I always notify people if I'm reducing the price and I always grandfather people in if I'm increasing the price. Same here. I've never, to be fair, I've never actually lowered my prices, but yeah, I wish yeah. other people in. Yeah, I've done it once um, because I was testing to see how far I could go on the pricing. So um, yeah, I'd usually it went like 9, 19, 29, 50. And then at 50, I started getting people pushing back on the pricing and everything. So I moved it back down to 29. And of course, the people that had signed up to 49, I let them know and, and gave them a link so they could up, uh, downgrade, I guess, yeah, to the new great. pricing. Because with Shopify, they have to accept it, right, before it will change their stuff. Yeah, that's frustrating. Um, 
And that reminds me, I was actually looking for, or I was looking at a competitor to Intercom. It's called user.com or users, user.com, I think it's called. It used to be called User Engage, but they've got a lot of the same features that the Intercom have and, and much more reasonable pricing. But so I signed up and, and you give you, you sign up to the plan as soon as you, there's no trial as such, or maybe there is, but I'd used it a long time ago or something. So then I imported all my data from Intercom and then played around with it and wasn't super, like I just found the, the interface clunky, forgot all about it. And it was like, now I've just, <laughs> I saw in my bank account that the, it was like $2,500 or something was <laughs> the final charge oh, for the man. month because of the amount of data I pumped in there. So I was like, oh, and I can't go <laughs> and complain to them because I've put the data in there. But yeah, so then I went and canceled that this week. That's funny. Yeah, it's uh, silly to, to burn money like that, but uh, sometimes you do it. Yeah, um, by accident sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not too good. Another thing I've been looking at this week is, oh, I was super happy to see, I was actually searching for it, I think it was on Monday or Sunday, is the new Polaris Shopify's uh, design system. They'd been, I'd, I'd read somewhere a few months ago that they'd been working on like a Figma UI kit. And then just this week, they launched it, which was like the day after I'd been searching for it. And it's fantastic. It's the new Shopify has come out with a new design language. There's a lot of changes, of course, but like one of the biggest ones is like the buttons change color and the rounding of corners and things like that. There's like more more rounding. Buttons aren't purple anymore. They're green. And there's a lot of other changes there as well. But because we're building out this app kit now and are building our own, we want to stick with the server-side rendered um, development way of doing things and not go with React, which means we, we need to, I want to adapt that design system in my apps. And I'm doing a lot of sort of wireframing and UI design. And you know, before I found that using, I've always used Balsamic. I don't know if- Yeah, I've used them before, yeah. great. Mm, absolutely, and I love it. It's, but it's really quite like low fidelity. So very simple designs and you'll never understand the actual final look by looking at one of these. You can use it for working out how do you want to present this data, but you can't show how it should look as well. And that's been fine. I've been working on my own, but now that we're more than one person, I've, I've got to put my ideas like clearer down on paper, I guess you could say. And that's where this is just a godsend in a sense. And I've already, I spent maybe 15 minutes on it one day and I'd already created half of the screen that I need to do. Uh, it's like drag and you can adjust them and customize them. And it's such a time saver and you get like, a pixel perfect design that you can give to somebody else and they know exactly what you mean. So little things like badges uh, or yeah, like a badge showing either a yellow color or an orange color for different states. And in, in Balsamic, that would be really hard to explain. Whereas here you can just hoggle the states and, and show it to them directly. Anyway, I was super excited about that. I'll drop the link in the show notes, but really huge time saver and perfect timing. Do you use, so you said you don't use React, but do you use the Polaris CSS in your apps or something else? No, I haven't. Um, I've, I've used Bootstrap and I think most of my apps are on Bootstrap 3 still. And then I took and customized parts of Bootstrap to make them look like Polaris. So the the color scheme and the rounding and all that type of stuff and the font used and font sizing and stuff have been adjusted to match it. Yeah, that's basically what I did, but I used uh, Tailwind. I actually tried to use the Polaris CSS when it first came out, and it might be better now, but at the time, like every element would have 15 classes on it that all had 75 character names, and it just made my HTML like unreadable. So I ended yeah. up 
ditching it for Tailwind, unfortunately, because it, it would be nice to use it. And if I was smart enough to use React, then I would just do that. I don't know it, so. <laughs> yeah, same here. And I've tried, I did some testing in React and it wasn't that bad, but it just, it's not how I like to build apps. And I don't enjoy writing JavaScript as much as I do writing Ruby or Rails. And, you know, I think Ruby and Rails just fits better with my thought pattern, I guess you could say. And yeah, I save it myself a lot of time by just using the React thing. But anyway, I like to make things hard on myself. But yeah, my looking at the actual uh, CSS classes and stuff, it's stripped down a lot now. There's still a lot of nesting of components. So, and I guess that's maybe because a component in React has to have a surrounding container. Yeah. So it ends up with a bunch of nesting in a sense. And the CSS is really just like the full as if you took all React components, chucked them in. And, and so you have to reconstruct the same nesting, I guess you could say. And it's, it just doesn't look nice enough. So the way we're doing it, or the way I've done a couple of components so far, is to just inspect the elements and, and to pull out sort of the parts that uh, reformat the HTML myself. But then I can reuse a lot of the CSS that, you know, through inspecting to quickly build up the same thing just in a simpler sort of way. It's a lot of maintenance in the end, but seeing as it'll be in one place and you know, we won't build all the components. We'll only build the ones that we actually need for our apps. Um, it should be manageable, I think. I just saw this. I saw a new tool that came out in the Laravel ecosystem, but really it's just for anyone who uses Tailwind that looks really neat. I, I think it's called Windy. Okay. Essentially, you can hover over any element on a page and it will, no matter what kind of CSS you use to run it, it will give you the Tailwind classes to use. All right. Okay. I thought that'd be really nice for the Polaris stuff because mine's a, a very weak approximation of, of Polaris. Like it's close, but like you can see when you look at it, it's not exactly there. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think that's cool. I just didn't love all the classes in, in Tailwind, but maybe I just didn't give it enough of a shot. I also didn't like that I need to have a whole build system and stuff for it as well. Um, yeah, that's built into Laravel, which I think is where those guys came from. So it's add one line to a file and you got the build system. But yeah. If yeah. I didn't have that, like anytime I've had to actually go in and mess with it, like I'm lost. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Rails is similar now with Webpacker, as they call it. It's like a, a Rails thing that, that makes it easier to get Webpack into your app. But because I'm using an engine like this bolt-on thing, you can't have uh, Webpacker in the engine then give CSS to the host app, like the main app. So there's like a complication there, whereas like the old asset pipeline for rails you can basically just pull in the css from the engine and use it in the main app like it was always there so i think maybe it was going to complicate things more than just tailwind itself but also in trying to get it all to compile in the end and, and actually work so maybe i haven't given enough thought but i'd like to see sort of movement on that technical part first before i check myself into it again. for sure just usually don't bother learning new stuff yeah, like generally yeah definitely and building out the first components didn't actually take that long I was surprised how quickly I could do it. And I built a little system for how I could do more and how I could identify them. Now I just need to obviously teach that as well, but it should be fun. Nice. Um, how important do you think it is using Polaris in an app then? Do you think it's something people should be doing or? No, I don't think it's super important. At least it hasn't been for me. I think it's just making a reasonable approximation to match what's going on in Shopify. I think generally is good enough. I don't know, I guess, because I've never had an app that used Polaris specifically to be perfect. Maybe my conversion rates would double, I don't know. But I think that, 
I think for the most part, as long as it looks reasonable and isn't like super jarringly different from the Shopify admin, I think you're probably okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's exactly my thoughts as well. I think it's there to to give the user sort of a comfortable place, like they know how things work in Shopify, then they know how things work in the app. But the actual design and everything else, I think is less important. I think it's a matter of usability, trying to enhance the bar of usability in a lot of apps, maybe where people aren't trying to pay as much attention to usability in the app. Yeah, and that's one thing that's actually really helpful in Polaris is that they have writing guidelines for things like help messages and alerts and things like that. Super helpful if you're not really sure how to word things. They have really yeah. nice guidelines there that I do actually use in my apps to just keep everything the same as Shopify does. And it's all really helpful, friendly Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that the part on like tone and uh, language use and vocabulary and things is super, super interesting, actually, just to read through. And the one for Polaris is, is really well written. And yeah, definitely worth a look, even just if you're in there going for the components, half of the, the UI is going to be made up of words and what you pick as words that people are going to be using. Yeah, and I think it's been a great booster for the people that actually know React. Um, but for somebody like me, it's more about just making people feel at home and I don't think you have to use Polaris. Um, I just think it can be a productivity booster if that's your thing, I guess. Yeah, it would be nice. I wish like I just use React and Ruby and could use the Shopify gem and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just, I, I don't know them. So I, I'm probably faster than in, in just doing it in what I know, but I'd probably be faster still if I knew there's endorsed technologies. Definitely. Yeah. But it does also add a, a certain dependency, which I'm trying to reduce in my apps now and not adding things for no reason, particularly. Right. Yeah. 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 We're getting on uh, in the time here. So I don't know if you've got uh, anything else you want to talk about. I've got one last thing I wanted to mention beforehand. Yeah. And oh, good. Go for it. Okay. It's this week. I shouldn't say so much. I, but partner metrics that I've had um, available for a long time has been getting work done on it. And I don't know, Daniel Sims? Yeah. Is, uh, yeah, a really nice guy. Had the plugin useful apps for many years and has recently had that acquired. So anyway, yeah, he lives here in Denmark as well. And we were just chatting on, how do you say, on, on Twitter and also on Skype, I think it was. Anyway, he was looking at the new partner API that Shopify released and uh, and wanted to play around with it. And obviously, Partner Metrics was a great, great place to to try that out. So he's he's been working on adding support for the partner API so we can automatically pull in all the payout data into the metrics that we generate. So you'll be able to see like revenue and everything else and it'll be updated when you log in. Instead, you have to do the whole export the zip file from Shopify, import that into the tool, wait, and then it comes alive sort of thing. So here we'd actually be able to load that data automatically from Shopify. And he's, we've basically got it working. We need to look at like performance because obviously a CSV file is pretty quick to read through and there's, there might be like 500,000 rows in that thing. And then, uh, yeah, but then doing it via the API, we can get like a hundred at a time and that takes three seconds or something. So getting 500,000 that way is going to be going to take a while. So we've got to think about that. But yeah, anyway, so shout out to Daniel for, for taking the time to get onto that. And then we're just going to clean up the UI and then the next couple of weeks we should have had something ready to, for people to use. That's awesome. I can't wait to try it out. Yeah, it'd be good. I think it's also about time that it actually gets some love. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was pretty much my week. Yeah, it's been fun chatting as always. And I'm sure, sure we'll have lots more next week. Awesome. All right. I'll talk to you then. Yeah, sounds good, mate. Cheers. Yeah, see you.